Okay, let's um, let's get started. I'd like to welcome uh, everybody here to um, to the LSC. My name's Peter Tribowitz. I'm the co-head of the United States International Affairs Program at LSE Ideas and a professor of international relations. And I'm very pleased to um, to be able to uh, welcome uh, Felipe Fernandez Ernesto to the LSE. Uh, Felipe is the William uh, P. Reynolds Professor of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame and the author most recently of Our America, A Hispanic History of uh, the United States. This book's generated a lot of interest in the United States, a lot of attention, uh, in large measure because, one, it challenges the standard um, interpretation or understanding of America's cultural development. Uh, by uh, elevating the importance of uh, Spanish-speaking peoples. And secondly, because he argues uh, that America's past and its future bears a much closer resemblance uh, to Latin American republics than most chroniclers of the American experience are prepared to acknowledge, which is what he's going to talk about tonight uh, in his lecture, A Typical Latin American Country, the United States. Um, for those of you, does anybody in here who uses Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE USA. Uh, the way we're going to do this is Felipe will, um, he's got a PowerPoint, he's going to lecture for about uh, 40, 45 minutes, something like that, and then we'll just follow standard procedure here where we'll open it up for question and answer, and then there's going to be a book signing uh, that I'll talk more about uh, at the end. Uh, but for now, uh, please join me in welcoming Felipe to the LSE. Well, thank you very much for that was a very kind uh, introduction. Uh, it's a great treat to be here. It's lovely to have an audience whom one can look up to in more ways. I, I suppose it's, this may seem rather early in the lecture to call the halt, but I start with a stop sign, um, not because it's a stop sign, but because it's in Quebec. The northernmost extension of Latin America. Because this is a country which is romance in language, Catholic in religion, and it has a civil tradition of law. So it has, um, and we have to say nothing of other elements of culture, such as food, wine, and it's, it's got a typical Latin American cultural profile. But its political and economic history don't match conventional Latin American stereotype. So I think the example of Quebec, you may not think that's a typical, maybe it's rather anomalous Latin American country, but it immediately makes us challenge the common assumption that there's some kind of congruence between political and economic behavior and other elements of culture. It also makes us question, I think, what we really mean by Latin America. But I think if you're talking culture, if you're on the romance speaking, and you're Catholic, and you've got a civil war, 
traditional. Um, that makes it at least you know, reasonable to classify this face as, as Latin American. Maybe you'd be more comfortable with the next image. Uh, oh, oh, well, sorry, that's just to show you that if you have any doubts that Quebec is you know, a Latin country to Anglo-Visitors, there's the truth. Um, but maybe, maybe the next uh, image will be more comfortable because this one looks much more typically Latin American, right? That conforms much more to the stereotype. Well, of course, this is a sort of country with an Anglo tradition, a Protestant tradition, and a common law basis to its legal culture. This is Belize. So, and yet, economically and politically, this has much more the typical, stereotypical Latin American profile of a country of economic arrestation, political turbulence, and corruption. So again, what do we mean by Latin America? And how are the conventional assumptions about the congruence of culture um, work? I won't dwell on examples like this. Was this Latin America? Looks like a Dutch streetscape. Well, this is a place which is, again, um, uh, in, in many ways, conforms strongly to uh, typical Latin American frame. That's Curaçao. Uh, and I'll say even less about this example. Because that's the Falkland Islands, or the Malvinas, if you prefer. Um, and I, I share these cases both you know, to challenge this assumption about cultural congruence, and also to suggest that certainly at the margin, it's very hard to determine where the limits of a rational classification of cultures as Latin America comes. What I want to do today is suggest that at least in some respects, the United States is such a marginal case, it constitutes rather a big margin, uh, but that in some respects is a typically Latin American country. Um, Southern wouldn't be uh, welcome by my old friend Peter's own friend Sam Huntington. You may recognize this as a quotation from um, his very uh, influential, controversial book, Who Are We? Which is a kind of manifesto of the uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant reading of American history. Uh, you can see the question he asks here. Huh? Uh, it's obviously a rhetorical question, and they the answer is obviously no, because you know, nothing would be what it is if it had been something else. But um, there are clearly some things wrong. I mean, this is clearly a question mode. Because in the first place, there all these, these British settlers weren't, well, weren't all Protestants. Nor all Protestant settlers British. And in much even of what was formerly British imperial territory in what became the United States, very substantial parts of the population weren't either British or Protestant. At least not to begin with. <laughs> in some colonies actually had to take the total numbers of migrants over the entire colonial period, and the, the majority were Africans. And in any case, very substantial parts of what is now US territory, was settled by French and especially by Spanish Catholics. 
that assumptions underlying the question are false. And you can see that even if you, you look at where Hispanics, people by Hispanics, I just mean people who tick that box on the census, who class themselves, willing to be classed by the state as suspended. If you look at most of the places where they live, I make no apology for using a map of Catholic classes as an obvious justification um, for that. It's not entirely owing to the fact that I work for the University of Nature. Uh, you can see that the places which have substantial Hispanic populations today had substantial Hispanic populations some time ago or fell within the frontiers. Well, here, these are the frontiers of the, the Mexican state uh, prior to the, the Mexican-American War. Um, of course, well, when one wants to look at the... I mean, I know this is slightly cheating because most of these areas are not settled in Huntington's sense um, uh, very much, if at all. But if you look at the, you know, the boundaries of the colonial empires that occupied parts of what now the United States, there's obviously a very substantial part of the history of the country which falls outside. Well, I don't know, would it be inappropriate to say oh, beyond the Anglo pale? Um, certainly fall outside the British imperial experience. And I think that um, uh, the assumptions uh, underlying uh, Huntington's question are false because he was like so many people who are over educated in sociology, uh, they been. And he was a culturalist. He thought that culture shapes everything else, and it's autonomous. It, it unfolds independently of other influences, whether they're biological or ecological. And I certainly don't want, you know, to be, I don't portray myself as a, an environmental determinist. I read a whole book against environmental determinism. But you can't separate culture and environment. They shape each other. And any understanding of history like Sam's that doesn't take environment into account is going to be misleading. And I think if you look at this now, you can see that the main reason why there are big differences between the histories of North America and the histories of the rest of the Americas, broadly speaking, is environmental. Now, the North has got this vast, you know, boreal extension, which doesn't exist in the, in the South. Oh, I can use this very citing LSE technology. Yeah, I mean, it's got a little bit of boreal... Um, biome right in the, in the south, but pretty much, you know, all that just doesn't exist in the south. And similarly, the north doesn't have the vast tropical zone, which dominates much of South America. That's the main reason why these parts of the hemisphere have had partially divergent histories. It's also the reason why some parts of North America, Anglo-America, United States, Canada, strongly resemble some parts of what we conventionally call 
Latin America, because there are, you know, various substantial areas like the the uh, arid grasslands of the North American prairie and the Latin American pampa and Patagonia, um, uh, of rather lusher grasslands in both cases, somewhat to their um, east, uh, various substantial areas of temperate woodland in both regions. There are these very important, very highly productive Mediterraneanoid regions in both hemispheres. Uh, and although this doesn't show up very much in the map, I'm sure everybody's aware that in, in subtropical America, particularly in the sort of coastal zones and parts of the interior of what we conventionally call the Deep South, you've got a very similar um, uh, ecological regime, a very similar um, potential for similar products as in the Circum-Caribbean region of what we conventionally call Latin America. I'll just uh, show you one or two rather concrete examples. Um, this is one of the consequences of those environmental overlaps between the two halves, two moieties of the hemisphere. This is ranching. And this is ranching in Mexico. And this is actually Missouri, because there are parts of southern Missouri which are very similar environment. Um, but of course, you know, I might typically have you showing you a picture of Texas, I suppose. And you know, clearly there's a lot of environmental continuity between much of uh, Texas and other parts of the American Southwest, and Sinaloa and Chihuahua. And therefore, you get the same kinds of cultures, same kind of, in this case, economic culture, manifested in those areas. Or if I show you another example, which I must say slightly Baffles me because you look at this picture and that one. Uh, I am ashamed to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that I now can't remember myself which of these is Idaho and which is Peru. But, you know, these aren't both, of course, classic potato countries. Uh, and they're classic potato countries. They have very similar um, uh, ecological profiles for these very obvious reasons. So I think we can um, begin to see that if you, if you start talking about the United States as a whole and Latin America as a whole, if you look at the topic environmentally in terms of biomass or region, you begin to see that there are a lot of correspondences which span the conventional dividing line of Rio Grande or whatever, uh, which um, which really do represent um, conspicuous similarities uh, between the United States and other parts of the Americas. Um, and it's surprising to me that this observation isn't more reflected in the existing historiography. Because after all, the regionalist approach to U.S. history, I know that Peter would agree with me, but I mean, you know, from my perch in Indiana, that is, you know, practically the only kind of research which graduates are doing in American history. <coughs> and environmental history is a very big part of that, and it's the most explosively growing area of research uh, in U.S. history. 
And on the regional approach goes back at least, you know, to Bancroft. Uh, and was pioneered in a very obvious way by this guy, Herbert Eugene Bolton, who has the reputation, as is literally true, but a reputation I had the biggest number of PhD students in the history of American education. Obviously, you know, tremendously influential founder of what we now call the Borderlands, a school which is all about, you know, kind of tracing the continuities that embrace southern and western, western parts of the United States and parts of formerly Spanish um, America. But in spite of the tremendous impact of both of them in the academic world, the message of the United States is, in part, a Latin American country doesn't seem to have got through. It doesn't seem to have got through at the popular level, in spite of the work of, of this guy, Carrie McWilliam, who was a, a radical journalist who devoted himself to a lot of um, workers' causes in the, in the 1940s, uh, and who wrote a wonderful book, um, North from Mexico, uh, which really is an attempt to see the history of the United States from the perspective of Mexican um, migrants uh, in that era, people with whom he lived and worked for much of his life. Uh, and he was a very popular, well-known figure in his day, but again, this message doesn't seem to have percolated through. It hasn't modified the curriculum, it hasn't modified the textbooks, it hasn't modified the way Americans typically think of uh, their history. And I, a point was brought home to me in a rather graphic fashion when I was here. Maybe recognize this, um, ladies and gentlemen, famous building, the chapel of the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Uh, when I went a few years ago to give some lectures, I'm afraid of giving lectures anyway, so I would go anywhere. Uh, there was a young, very nice young American Air Force lieutenant, as we say over that, uh, who was deputed you know, to look after me. Um, he was a young man of very broad uh, sympathies and um, very cultured, very well educated. And he called himself a liberal, which as you probably know the US Air Force Academy has the reputation of being a hotbed of, of mad, dogmatic, evangelical fundamentalists. By calling himself a liberal, he was making a real statement. Um, but, and, 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 and he, was, he, he told me that he was in favor of immigration which, since I was an immigrant myself, I thought was very good of him. <laughs> um, but, he said, when people come here, they should learn to speak the native language. I didn't think he was talking about Ute or Comanche. Um, so I, I agreed with him, and I said, yes, everybody should be made to learn Spanish. And he looked at me strangely, you know, for a moment. And I said, excuse me, what is the name of the state? And since we're in Colorado, that was kind of the end of the argument. Um, but it made me realize that you know, even these very well-educated, broadly sympathetic, cultured, liberal Americans, they know, they realize, if they know it intellectually, they realize fully that the country has this very long Hispanic past. Well, the Spanish has actually been staking in the territory of what is now the United States for longer than English. Right, for much longer than English. Because another experience that I had when I was teaching at, at Tufts, it was very 
Uh, so Unitarian foundations, universal, very radical tradition. You, you can't throw a brick on the campus of Tufts University without fitting a little. Um, and we have a, you know, we have a, a, a post available for a, a specialist in the colonial period of the history of what is now in the United States. Obviously, we had the cream of the nation, all the best graduates and the recent doctor, doctor in Spain and, and applied for this door. Our small language, which I think was perfectly fair question to ask a purported specialist in the colonial period of the history of what is now the United States. My question was, where on the territory was now U.S. territory did the first enduring European colony take place? And I'm ashamed to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that some of these people actually said Jamestown, Virginia. And these were, you know, experts in the field. Uh, some of them rumbled with this and realized that um, well, there must be a trick here. And they said, oh, it, it must be, um, well, maybe, maybe here. This is San Agustin in Florida, which you know is a Spanish colony from the 1560s. And some of them said, uh, maybe it's, it's here. This is San Rafael in New Mexico, which was colonized in 1598. I mean, these are substantially early in the first Jamestown colony in 1687. Um, but actually, the correct answer, oh, oh well, sorry, I don't have a picture of the correct answer. Correct answer is actually Puerto Rico. Uh, but as um, Stephen Spender says, nobody knows in America, Puerto Rico's in America. Uh, but it, it is US territory. Uh, and it was, well, the first sentence of my book is um, the first European colonists on the territory of what is now the United States were three pigs and some goats. Because, you know, in those days, the Spaniards always landed livestock ahead of the human colonists so that they would have something to eat when they arrived. And that was in 1505. And I, I knew that Puerto Rico only came to play a, a major part in the history of the United States um, a long time um, later, but the, the myopia that excludes this episode of history from people's thinking about the country is nonetheless, I suspect, significant. I mean, you know, there are places like this is Santa Barbara, um, which have never really ceased to be Spanish in character, which aren't, um, aren't Latin-feeling places in the United States by virtue of recent immigration. They're Hispanic by virtue of continuity with colonial of course, in Santa Barbara, you know, it's, it's very committed to its Hispanic character. Even the Presbyterian church in Santa Barbara is built in the Hispanic revival style. Uh, and they have this annual celebration, which they call the Old Spanish Days. Um, and I, I, you know, I obviously, I chose from this size that you can see it's kind of called Spanishness. But um, the book. Point is not that it's failing, but people are willing to invest so much emotion, so much money in this failure, in celebrating the unbroken Hispanic tradition. And this, this, this festival culminates in, uh, in a barbecue. And in order to attend that barbecue, you have to be a member of the local aristocracy. You have to be a descendant of the 
Spanish presidio of the 18th century. Something which causes me great amusement because, of course, the guys in the Spanish presidio in Santa Barbara in the 18th century were the scum of the monarchy. I mean, you, you wouldn't go there if you could make it anywhere else. It was absolutely the back of um, beyond. But they, the descendants of these uh, desperados have become the, the aristocrats of, of Santa Barbara today, which itself shows you, you know, how uh, uh, atypical of what we conventionally think of as, as um, U.S. style behavior, the culture of Santa Barbara is. And then, you know, this is why when the, the fact that this is long Hispanic presence in so much of it is why Carlos Quinn's could put these words into the mouth of an imaginary migrant wetback arriving on, in the, what is today the United States uh, and saying to himself, um, I just reclaim the territory of my ancestors. And actually he is. Um, of course, migration has now spread this Hispanic feeling way beyond the former borders of the Spanish monarchy or the Mexican Republic. Since in, in New York, it's mainly Puerto Rican migration. Uh, although, of course, Puerto Rican migration, just remember, it's not immigration, because Puerto Rico is U.S. territory. Um, this is Fall River, Massachusetts. This is the Portuguese celebration. Fall River, Massachusetts now, you know, majority Portuguese um, uh, community. This is 18th Street, Chicago, um, where uh, waiters crowded around me because they were amused to uh, hear my, my Castilian Spanish. I mean, this may be the weirdest example of the law. This is Puerto Rico Day in, in Hartford, Connecticut, where, you know, in the, in the, in Hartford, 50% of the population class themselves is Hispanic. And, uh, you know, and, uh, there's all the, you know, state's got a Hispanic governor, the town's got a Hispanic mayor, the, 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 it's like way, right, a long way, the biggest single community, uh, self-defined community in the state of Connecticut. Um, I share this because I, um, I do want to emphasize that the contribution that Hispanics have made to U.S. culture uh, doesn't have anything to do, in fact, I'm formulating that badly, isn't solely to do with the imperial past or the recent migration. Okay? Quite a lot of results from uh, Anglo-Americans and, and Americans from, with other provinces adopting um, elements of Hispanic tradition voluntarily and enthusiastically. And this is my favorite example. <coughs> in a way, uh, you can see this is a sort of emblem, meant to be an emblem of cultural hybridity. It's meant to show you that the United States is a plural country with a Hispanic and an Anglo uh, tradition. But of course, in this case, the Anglo tradition is copied from the Hispanic one. Well, what could 
be more American, what could be more representative of American popular culture than the masked hero? And who is the prototype of the masked hero? It's Zorro. I mean, you know, uh, the Lone Ranger is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. It's Zorro. And all subsequent great American heroes are cast in the same mode. In the case of Superman, there's one slight difference. He takes his spectacles off in order to become Superman instead of putting his mask on. But, it, you know, it's, it's very, it's clearly a mimetic. Um, transformation, which is based on this, and, and all these supermen follow the story well. You know, they're all marginal characters, they're all outsiders, they're all strangers who um, save society from the uh, from the outside. And in every case, the um, uh, the mask or unmasking Superman's case transforms them into uh, invincible um, heroes on the side of justice. I suppose if Sam Huntington were here, he'd say, um, uh, maybe you know, there are some ways in which um, uh, Anglo-American culture is indebted to Hispanic tradition. But um, uh, he'd also say, I think, that uh, what worried him, what disturbed him about the Hispanic presence, while these rather negative elements of culture which he would have characterized as part of the, the profile of, of Spanish legacy in the Americas. Um, I, I certainly you know, wouldn't deny that you can spot all of these features very prominently in the history of pretty much all the communities that we conventionally call Latin America. Uh, and I certainly don't want to say that the United States, the history of the United States, has been dis as disfigured by these vices as that of much of Latin America. I would say, however, that you can find all of these things in U.S. history, uh, because you particularly find them consistently with what I was saying earlier in the lecture, particularly you can find in certain regions. Um, here's a typical Calvillo, uh, Huey Long, um, and this scene which, you know, would be perfectly believable in Venezuela, of course, actually happened in Louisiana. Uh, and Huey Long really was a, a Calvillo, indeed he actually um, was responsible for a, a coup d'etat in 1930-something, I think two was it, Peter, I'm not very good at dates, I don't know. I'm, I'm, my um, favorite story, historiographical story of T. Lawrence, when he was an undergraduate at Oxford, who in his final honor schools papers only included in history, only included one date, which was when the Normans conquered England in the second half of the 11th century. That's my kind of historian. Anyway, it was 1930, sorry, I think 1932. Um, that Huey Long was um, deposed from the governorship of Louisiana because he'd taken a seat in the Senate and it was against the law to have, have 
um, faith. So he responded to this by calling out the National Guard, arresting his opponent, and basically, it's basically the opposition of the state legislature and just carrying on illegally in both um, in both offices. So that, that, that's that's a putsch, that's a pronunciamiento, that's a coup d'état. Notice how the English have only foreign words for this activity because they don't consider it consistent with Anglo culture. But you do find it in the history of the United States. Uh, you find um, the state using its armed forces against its own citizens. Now, I don't want to be unkind to um, uh, the United States. I, I, mean, I do think on the whole, it's a very honorable tradition um, of keeping the army out of politics. But when it suits the state, it, it sends in the troops, typically it sends in the National Guard, but sometimes it sends in federal troops, um, in obviously classic strike-breaking um, events. This is a, um, a morally equivocal example, because this is the, the incident in 1957 when Eisenhower sent an airborne division into Arizona to enforce desegregation of yeah. which I, I think was an admirable thing to do, but it was the use of the military by the state against its own citizens, and of course for the white supremacists in Arizona, it was you know, a repressive and oppressive political um, act of militarism uh, just as much as, and, and if we saw something like this, you know, happening in you know, south of Rio Grande, we'd say, oh, that's typical Latin American behavior. But you can find it north of the Rio Grande as well. Or, one well, about, you know, this. Now, I don't think it's at all surprising that it's in one of these areas of the, of North America, the deep south, which is, as I was saying earlier, environmentally, ecologically very similar to certain parts of the southern Caribbean region in formerly Spanish America, that you find this, this latifundismo, this, this plantation economy. And you know, if you look at the history of the, the deep south in the United States, it resembles parts of Latin America, uh, you know, um, far more closely than it does, say, the history of Minnesota. Because you've got long period of economic stagnation, same, you know, uh, intractability to industrialization, same reliance on primary products, the same latifundismo, the same plantation um, scale uh, agriculture, and the same racially defined underclass. Um, and again, I, I, you know, I don't say this to be uh, un kind about the United States, I said, because it's true, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's helpful, it's always helpful to um, make one's judgments on the basis of a true and not a mythical account of the past. I think it's surprising, I mean, you know, to put it like this, um, uh, there's probably more in common between Chicago and Chile, including Asian Chicago economics than there is between um, Alabama and, and Minnesota. Uh, and there's probably more in common between Louisiana and uh, Cayenne than there is between 
uh, let's just say, um, Texas or <coughs> Um, and it's not surprising, because when the English founded their empire in North America, they wanted it to be like the Spanish Empire. They were actively, consciously, determined to be imitate the Spanish Empire. It's a famous Iron Mother portrait. You can see exactly what's in the Queen's mind. She's high hand is resting on the Americans. Um, and, I, I, and you know, if you read uh, the works of Richard Hacklewit or, or Sir William Gilbert, the John Dee, the, the, the forces of guys who you know, can see what became the British Empire in North America, the yardstick is always there. They always want to be like the standard. You know, the big disappointment was that North America didn't have the kind of environmental conditions that made it possible to operate uh, along the Spanish lines. You can see how determinedly they did it. This is a famous engraving from um, the works of uh, Captain John Smith um, trying to do in Virginia what he had read Cortes did in Mexico and Pizarro did in Peru, that's to say, prime, prime rule these indigenous societies by capturing their, their leader and using him as a, a surrogate. Um, and I, yeah, obviously these, these examples could be multiplied very considerably, but, but anyway, that my, my case is that the British Empire in North America began in imitation of the Spanish. So this raises the question, when did it diverge? How did it come about that now, allowing for all the exceptions and anomalous cases and regional departures from the norm that I've described to you, how did it happen that the history of the two moieties of the hemisphere came to diverge so much and that it ended up being so different? A common supposition, I think one that Sam Huntington would agree with, was that it's the consequence of a fatal inheritance from the colonial period. You can see the, this itemization problems of Latin America by um, uh, Francisco Garcia, the Roman Peruvian diplomat um, who, who uh, his works were very popular before the First World War. Uh, he's, he's going way back into the colonial past and even into um, uh, in environmental uh, conditions to, to uh, explain why the United States succeeded and the rest the American part of Canada, broadly speaking, failed. But I think that's the wrong strategy. I refer you to what I call the, the, the collapse of the norm pure. In my lifetime, as in the storm, the most conspicuous thing that's happened in my history, at least the thing that's most conspicuous to me, is that you know, when I was young, I was taught to be a graduate. I was taught to look back into the past to find the, the deep underlying roots of historical change. And we don't do that. Uh, because science has given us a different model of change, a contingent model of change, a model of punctuated equilibrium in the evolution of chaos in meteorology of 
um, fractals and, um, uh, and um, uh, unpredictable uh, random lurches in causal systems. And historians always take, we always copy the scientists, we always take our norms from the scientists, but we've adjusted the way we understand the past and have replaced the, this long causational model with a contingent model of historical change. And for example, you know, I've got don't have time for a lot of examples, but you know, when we ask why did the Roman Empire collapse, we no longer do what Gibbon did. We don't go way back, you know, to the age of the Antonines, when actually the Roman Empire is doing rather well. We say, oh, well, it was, you know, a, a, a short-term fluctuation caused by a lot of barbarian migrations in the late fourth and early fifth centuries. And when we when we uh, explain the English Civil War. When I was a schoolboy in this country, which was purgatory for a, 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 a Spaniard, um, you know, every year we did the English Civil War. And it was always the same. It was always a weak interpretation of English history. The English Civil War was the result of this long you know, search for uh, constitutionalism and democracy, which began in the Germanic Wars. No one would say that now. You know, all the specialists in the period tracing the English Civil War back only as far as about 1638 as the, the conditions caused by the, the outbreak of the Anglo-Scottish well, the French Revolution is another example. You know, when Tocqueville read about the French Revolution, he went back to the age of Louis XIV, when France was doing very well. And nobody had upset him. You know, now, all the books about the French Revolution say it's a result of the financial crisis in the state which arose in the 1780s because of the expenditure on the American Revolution, and so on. Now, I think that the, we need to examine the causes of the great American divergence using the same contingent short-term model. And when did the divergence happen? It happens in the 19th century. It happens critically in this very concentrated era, which I call from Humboldt to Houston, the, the first um, half of the, the 19th century. And if you look at what actually happened in that period, you can see the real reasons the great American divergence occurring just at that Time and they're economic. I mean, that's to do with global changes in patterns of trade, which was North America, uh, North American um, uh, producers were able to exploit, uh, and um, uh, producers in in other parts of America as weren't. It's to do with demographics. I mean, here's a really critical thing. You can see there's a sort of demographic tipping point in the early 19th century, which more than any other single influence explains why the United States succeeded, why the United States became the, the hemispheric superpower, the hemispheric hegemon, whilst Latin America fell behind. Uh, and then there are the political reasons, which I think are connected with the immediate circumstances of the wars of independence. And here are the observations of Henry Clay, who, who noticed that there were some considerable differences between the way wars of independence were conducted in the former Spanish Empire from the way that they were conducted in what had become by then the United States. And I think these observations are all entirely just and valid. But they, those differences didn't arise from deep-seated cultural influences stemming from the Spanish 
colonial past. They arose very rapidly and suddenly between the time of the American Revolution and the time of the Spanish Wars, the Spanish-American Wars of Independence. Because that period, you've got to remember, you know, that Bolivar was born 50 years after Washington. It's really quite a considerable generational gap between the American, U.S. independence and then other Spanish American, Spanish American republics. And in that time, the Enlightenment had been doused in the blood of the French Revolution. Total war had become uh, normal as a result of the Napoleonic Revolution. Um, and Romanticists had made um, emotions more valued than reason. Uh, so this change wasn't as Daniel O'Leary, well, he was um, lieutenant, I thought, um, uh, resigned some sort of essentialist um, doctrine. Uh, it had much more to do with changes in the nature of the war. And you can see that, uh, if you look at the report of the Committee of Congress on the War of 1812, they accuse the the British are doing all the things, you know, that at the same sort of time, right, uh, at the same sort of time, Henry Clay's uh, characterization, um, Spaniards and Spanish Americans are doing to each other. And I, you know, if you look at this, this um, a very brief extract from Bolivar's um, account of his experience on Mount what he called his delirium. You can see how he, he um, was perfectly candid about having this, this extraordinary mystical experience in which he, he claimed that God spoke to him, big claim for him since he was a free thinker and had never shown much faith in God uh, before. But he, he has this you know, extraordinary mystical experience when he, is, he says literally, um, inflamed by a strange and superior fire. I mean, you cannot imagine George Washington writing something like that. And that's not because, you know, Bolivar was an emotional Latin and Washington was a phlegmatic Anglo. It's because Washington was, was a, Washington was a figure of the Enlightenment and Bolivar was a figure of the Romantic era. And so I, 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 I think we, we, we don't need that. To suppose a fear, as Sam Huntington feared, and as the framers of anti-American, anti-immigrant legislation in the United States fear, we don't need to fear the Hispanic presence in the United States, the sort of cultural cancer introducing all these ghastly devices which go way back into the Hispanic parts. Uh, we don't need to fear the increase in the numbers of self-classified Hispanics in the United States. Uh, nor do we need to fear the um, plurality of culture, which is becoming increasingly part of the North American scene. On the contrary, I think that's creating enrichment of the um, of the country. Um, indeed, I think that it's time for people in the United States, where I myself as well, to embrace the facts of their past and realize that um, the, the country has this long um, Hispanic experience, presence, uh, that it's been very influential in molding what the United States is 
um, today, but it's nothing to be afraid of. On the contrary, it's going to be a tremendous asset in the future. Because the United States is aimed against Savant as a great and beneficent country, such as it has been in the past. If it finds new, a new kind of economic future, and in my submission, that economic future can only be based on the cooperation of Hispanics within the United States and collaboration with Hispanic neighbors abroad. There's a lot of historical debate about what made the United States great. In my submission, it was above all the availability of vast underexploited resources in the United States in the 19th century. Uh, underexploited resources of people, we've seen how the population grew, uh, of, um, and of, of mineral wealth, and above all, vast prairies which were turned from the being, they were formerly been the great American desert into the, the breadbasket of the world, the most productive farmland in the world. Well, there are no resources there. You know, Americans have used them well, very much. <laughs> and they're even using up the subterranean water. Um, the only thing, I mean, the, the 21st century equivalent of those 19th century underexploited resources are all in Latin America in the form of much faster growing population. And they're in Amazonia, and they're in the Chilean and Argentinian Antarctic, they're also of course in Canada, but they're not in the United States. The United States has got to adjust its attitude to its neighbors in order to remain great. And in the meantime, I mean these young people in Idaho palpably and incontroversibly correct. Right on time. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That's a fantastic presentation. Um, the floor is open uh, for, for questions. Um, this fellow's got a microphone. She's got a microphone on this side. So um, if you would just briefly introduce yourself, uh, posing your question, that would be great. For a most interesting talk, I better declare my lack of credentials. Um, Sorry, I'm not approaching you menacingly, it's just like very old and dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, I better declare my lack of uh, credentials because I've been a scholar of uh, America or Latin America. But I was interested particularly, well, there are a number of points, but you ended on talking about the United States having to change its attitude. What do you think has got to be the uh, main feature of this change of attitude? And also, is it going to be, again from what I hear on BBC World Service and reading the newspapers, with so much, so one reads, anti-Americanism, how are they actually going to win hearts and minds, the Americans, and uh, get a, a better relationship with their neighbours? Well, thank you very much. Excellent um, question. Just as uh, you um, disclaim any credentials uh, for, for historical scholarship, I disclaim any credentials for political counsel. I leave that to Sam. More keen on doing that sort of thing than I am. But you know, I mean, the unlikely event that um, 
uh, President Obama to ask me the same question. I'd say, you know, this is the most important thing, is to get the history right. You know, admit the truth that the, that the United States is a plural country. I, I mean, I think if I were being very naughty, very much naughtier than I am, if you can imagine such a thing, um, I think I might say that white Anglo-Saxon Protestant supremacy has been a brief blip in the history of a country which was Hispanic in the past and is now becoming increasingly Hispanic again. But, but even that isn't a sufficiently radical characterization of the truth of American history because there are all these other you know, strands in it. Um, uh, the Native American strand, the black strand, is you know, very thick. The strength of America is, is that it's, um, I know, the stars and stripes are sort of woven of warp and weft. It's, it's uh, like every strong fabric, it's made by crisscrossing thread in different directions. I think uh, America will be to see their country that way. And then they won't have this, you know, rational uh, attitude which was directed to Hispanic neighbors, which was so obvious in the, the um, cruel uh, uh, anti-immigrant legislation that passed in Alabama and South Carolina and Arizona in 2010-2011. Well, second thing that they have to do, I suppose, is you know, just acknowledge that they realize where their economic future lies. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And I, I was at a lecture by Jeffrey Parker last night, which he compared George W. Bush to Philip II of Spain, <laughs> and, and, and both engaged in a madcap over expenditure and, and, mm. and wasteful and, and cruel foreign adventures when what you know, they needed was to, to retrench and, and, and get right the stuff that was going on with, at home. Um, I, I think that the Americans will realize they haven't got the resources to go on running everything on their own, and that they need collaborators and allies, and that the most important collaborators and allies they need are their Native American um, neighbors, because those guys have got the, uh, those guys have got the resources, sometimes because on its own, you know, the United States is going to have the demographic weight in the future to compete economically with China, India, and the European Union. Um, so, so getting this history right, getting the economics right, well, I suppose, you know, if, if you ask me, you know, what as a matter of my own taste, I'd like to see them change is, is, is their attitude to bilinguals. Now, it drives me absolutely nuts that in, um, uh, I mean, that, that, that nature really does say bilingual Spanish only. <laughs> it's not bilingual, it's Spanish only. Bilingualism in the United States has come to me that Spanish-speaking children get taught in Spanish and English-speaking children get taught in English. That's not bilingualism. That just means that you're dividing these people and making it impossible for them to communicate with each other. Bilingualism ought to me, and that's why I want Americans to, to, to grow that Spanish speakers are educated in English and English speakers are educated in Spanish. They even have a really bilingual culture and it would be twice as good as a monolingual culture. You know, because every time you learn a new language, you double your vocabulary and, and, and you gain access you know, to, 
to cultural riches that are inaccessible to those <coughs> who are, who are um, monocles. So I think of getting the history right and getting the economic right, get economics right are essential. And I'd like to see you get the language policy right as well. Uh, let's take that hand in the back there, and then I'll come to you, okay? <clears throat> Thanks. So I'm a student here, um, and I'm actually from Canada, which is a bilingual country, and I had to learn French in high school. And I mean, sure, I think people can really access a lot of riches by learning Spanish and by having Spanish people learn English, but how is it really practical to America's economy? And I mean, by your argument, wouldn't you encourage them to learn four languages or five languages each? I mean, isn't it kind of inefficient if you learn two languages? I don't really see the great practical benefits of making English people learn Spanish in the U.S. Well, thank, thank you very much. Um, um, I can't think of a, a, a better compliment than you know, to say that one's views aren't practical. I, I, I've always admired the Cambridge taste. Long live the higher mathematics. May they never be any use to anybody. I don't care, you know, about economic um, success. I care about the richness of people's lives and the, and the wonder of their experience and the, the opening of their minds. And I mean, obviously, you know, education isn't about equipping people. I hope this isn't what you do at the MSE. You know, the young man's always called students' feet up. I, you know, I, I deplore the example that you represent because you know, education isn't about learning stuff that's going to be useful. If it's useful, you can absolutely guarantee in a capitalist system that people are going to acquire anyway. Education is about acquiring what is useless, about do, learning the stuff that you don't have any incentive to learn, and discovering that it changes your life and enhances your enjoyment and multiplies your experience and opens your mind and, uh, and makes you more, a more sympathetic uh, and, and interesting person. Um, so of course, yes, of course, I absolutely love people to learn um, five languages. Um, uh, it, there's an opportunity in the United States for them to learn, to learn two. And a much better opportunity to make a genuinely bilingual country of the United States than there was making Canada a bilingual country. Quebec is bilingual, the rest of Canada isn't. I, I, one, one of my trips to Canada, I, I crossed the frontier of British Columbia and they gave me um, you know, one of those immigration forms to fill in. And, um, and it, it was in French, so I filled it in, in in French and I presented it to the, the um, official at the um, uh, a passport in inspection desk, and I've never seen such a, a look of fear in a woman's face beholding me before. Um, because she clearly you know, felt that she was being challenged to speak French, which she did very, very badly. <laughs> um, and and you know, bilingual education hasn't really worked in Canada, I don't think, outside. Okay, in Quebec, everybody speaks both languages pretty well. In most of the rest of the country, you're quite lucky if you can have a, you know, a conversation la langue tout But in the, in the United States, where, where the Spanish population is now very widely distributed, mm -hmm. there really is an opportunity to make bilingualism work. But it won't happen because, again, in the United States, 
they just get it, the words within their vocabulary. You say bilingualism to them and you explain what you mean, but they still don't get it because it's not what it means in their, um, in their lexicon. Uh, uh, it's very, very frustrating. Let's take this hand right here first. I'll, I'll come around. Yeah. Well, um, I'm actually a graduate of University of Work in History, Literature, and Culture of the Americas. Oh, which oh, oh yes. 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 I, I, I used to teach myself. I was a temporary oh. lecturer in my youth at your former university for three years in succession. Yes, I liked it very much. Let's do that, actually. Um, I have two questions. I was wondering whether you touched on both when you showed the uh, cattle ranching and the, oh, sorry, the, the cattle ranching oh, yes. and the, uh, the Lone Star, the Lone Ranger, sorry. Yeah. And would you agree with the idea of the cowboy being a vehicle to display the different cultures that are actually inherent in America, with there being uh, Native American, white, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Latin American, black cowboys? Would you oh, agree yeah. with that? And also, secondly, in terms of um, Puerto Rico, saying that was the first uh, area of European or successful European colonization. Would you, from that area, would you not say that it's more likely the North and South America being uh, examples of the success of Caribbean culture or being, uh, I'm not sure what the term is, but descendants of Caribbean culture as opposed to being Latin American? Oh, well, I, I, I thank you very much. I think the answer to the first question is yes. The answer to the second question is much more problematic. Um, I mean, uh, 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 because I, 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 did, I showed a picture of Curaçao, um, <coughs> and that's in the Caribbean, but it's very, very close, you know, to the, the case of Venezuela. So, um, uh, the point at which uh, you, you, you draw your geographic limits of Latin America um, it is as... Hard to resolve, I think, is the, the point at which you draw your cultural limits. If we go back, you know, to um, uh, you know, to that image of the Falkland Islands, um, that's obviously you know further from Argentina than a lot of the Caribbean, all the Caribbean islands are from the United States or uh, uh, um, or from Venezuela. Um, uh, what about East Island? Uh, is, that, is that Latin America? The East Islands are obviously you know, they're part of the territory of Mexico, and all that far out in the Caribbean. Um, the Galapagos are, you know, slightly more problematic example. What about Saint Pierre and Miquelon? You know, they're islands off the coast of Canada. They're part of the Americas. Um, and I don't know, you know, if people want to have a separate institute for studying the Caribbean from studying the rest of the Americas, that's, that's fine by, by me. But I mean, I've always, in my own work, treated the Caribbean as, um, as part of the same culture um, area. But then, you know, I've always been very transgressive about boundaries. And I, I do only study one planet. But I slightly regret the constraints, even of um, even of that. So, so, so I think Grant is that for me, the Caribbean's part of the Americas. But I, you know, there was a time at Warwick when it was treated as a separate 
era, they were sort of, and then I've, I've got nothing against that. I think, you know, part of being a pluralist is to say that you have to embrace lots of different approaches um, to, your, to your work, as, a lot of, as well as a lot of different cultures in your life. Um, I want to bring in some other people here. Go ahead. We'll start here, and then we'll come right back up there, okay? And then to you. Uh, yes, um, thank you for a very uh, pleasant um, lecture. But isn't uh, the, the main point that you're challenging a question of a, a sense of national identity? And you talk about the importance of historical accuracy, but very often a national sense of identity is based more on differences with your neighbors than on similarities with your neighbors. Look at um, Britain and France, you're all mixed up territorially in the Middle Ages and since we've been enemies and allies. Look at Spain and Portugal, look at Ireland and England, the whole point of being Irish and Portuguese is not to be English or uh, Spanish. <laughs> and consequently, why should we be surprised that the North Americans based their national identity on the Puritan work ethic, the Pilgrim Fathers, the Industrial Revolution, the railway building, the canal building, <coughs> rugged individualism, uh, allergy to everything baroque, and uh, all kinds of other things. Um, it's only natural. And if the, as the North um, won the Civil War against the Deep South, in which case you would have had a, a, a more graded merging with Latin America, possibly. Um, I think um, it's coming a little bit back to Huntington. It is a historical fact. The sense of culture that people inherit and propagate and transmit to their children. And uh, where in the Hispanic world did you have a figure like William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania? who in the late 17th century was convinced that religious tolerance, both for Quakers, Amish, Mennonites, Catholics, is vital at a time when in the Spanish, in the Spanish world you still had out of the phase. Okay. Well, right? Okay. That's my well, thank, thank you very much. I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of questions there. <laughs> I'll, I'll start with the question about, about national identity. I'll, I'll, I'll then answer your further implicit question about why um, people believe in this, myth, uh, then I'll turn to the question of whether, in general, um, uh, myths are good, and finally I'll deal with your point about religious tolerance being um, an Anglo virtue and intolerance being a Hispanic class. Um, so first question is about national identity. Well, of course, I deplore national identity. I, I, I in ways, based on a false reading of the past. Uh, you know, most, most communities that call themselves nations uh, don't have any justification for doing so other than a lot of mystical nonsense. Um, so I didn't make any, any um, uh, apology really for um, um, a, appearing to, to, to deprecate um, a strategy of um, national mythopoeia in the United States. Um, um, it's, of course, all identity, whether it's national identity or any, any sense of community um, derives from 
um, the self-differentiation of some people from others. And it's always the case that if you look at your neighbors and partners and collaborators and allies from within, you notice um, differences. Okay? Um, I don't know if I, um, uh, if I were to ask you to compare me and the lady sitting next to you, uh, you'd say that we were completely different, that she's young and I'm old, she's female and I'm vaguely male, um, that she's beautiful and I'm ugly, and so on. Um, but, you know, if you were to look at us from, with, with, an, with an objective with a sort of perspective that a visitor from the planet Zorg, you know, might have an anthropologist from Mars, you know, cite a, uh, a well-known top or sort of descent, and you ask him or her the same question, ask her to compare the latest lady and me, she'd say, oh, they're, you know, they're exactly the same, they're really weird, they've got one nose in the middle of their face. You know, so, so, so whether you see differences or similarities, is entirely a function of perspective. And that's clearly you know, no objective reality um, uh, in, um, in either characterizations or sort of function of the function which the observations um, are made. Uh, now whether um, you know, these mythic um, uh, characterizations have any positive um, effects, I mean, clearly they have positive effects because they forge unity between people who might otherwise fight each other. But I think those tend to be counterbalanced by the negative effects that ensue when collectively they then start fighting another whole other people who have corresponding but incompatible myths of themselves. So, you know, I, I, I think it's true that every community would do better to acknowledge its pluralism, look at itself from within and see, see all the differences that that characterize it, that, that, uh, by which it's, it's written. Because like, as soon as you do that, then you have, have a better chance of establishing sympathy um, with uh, other communities outside your own. And finally, you know, on this question, oh, uh, oh, big one, the question of why do people believe this, this myth? Why did this myth of the, the um, fatal inheritance from Spain grow up in the 19th century? Well, I think the gentleman who asked the question is what they're absolutely right. The uh, people in the 19th century genuinely believe that if you were um, white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant, you were better than everybody else. And they believe that on empirical evidence. White, Anglo-Saxon, Protestants succeeded militarily against everybody else, pretty much. It couldn't be the Maoris, but you know, they were very, very successful. The United States, very successful military from the um, War of 1812, between the War of 1812 and Vietnam, they didn't, they weren't uh, The British in the same period duffed up just about everybody. You know, they, beat, uh, they, they duffed up the Catholic, the Irish, the, the, the French, um, uh, they were, uh, um, uh, ruthlessly successful in most of their colonial wars. Protestant powers regularly beat Catholics. Um, in Prussia beat France, the United States beat Mexico. Um, uh, 
the white people normally defeated others with relative ease. So it was a natural inference from all this that um, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were, were distant, perhaps, you know, some people thought biologically hardwired for supremacy. But of course, yes, it was perfectly rational inference from the evidence, but we now, you know, can look at it in a, in a, with a more objective perspective and see that that inference was false. Um, and then, you know, finally, the the um, press about raged about religious intolerance and tolerance. I, you know, the truth is, I mean, this is just another of these myths that the that the English tradition is more characterised by by religious um, tolerance. Um, you know. It, 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 it's very selective religious <coughs> tolerance, which doesn't apply to Catholics. Um, I always abuse, you know, when when admirers of the Anglo tradition cite, you know, John Locke as a great deacon because um, he proclaimed um, freedom of religion and uh, freedom of um, property and. Uh, it, you know, and 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 and, um, and and liberty of the person. The freedom of religion didn't apply if you were a Catholic. The freedom of the person didn't apply if you were black, and the freedom of uh, property, um, you know, didn't uh, apply if you were a Native American. Um, uh, and and on the whole, you find religious tolerance in any religious community if it's in a minority. And. Religious communities tend to be intolerant when they're in a majority. When they have the power to enforce their religious views on other people, they take the opportunity. And that's a vice which is characteristic of most religions. It's just human vice. And there's nothing inherently more tolerant about being British than there is about being um, Spanish. When I, well, I mean, one of the reasons why I became a university teacher was that I was my first teaching jobs as a school teacher, um, that I found that um, um, I, these restrictions have now disappeared in this country, but there were quite a lot of jobs which as a Catholic um, I wasn't considered um, qualified for. I may have been one of the last generation to be a victim of a very long-standing history of intolerance in the British tradition. So we're we're running um, we're, sh we're running short on time, and I'm going to hold my own question, and we'll take both questions that are up there, um, and then let uh, Felipe respond. Hi, um, I've just joined LEC as a administrative staff member, but I um, I have an entirely useless bachelor's degree in Latin American studies and Spanish. Um, so, and I've got a master's degree in sociolinguistics, and I guess this is um, adding on to the question earlier about language, is that last year I was lucky enough to hear Ophelia Garcia speak at a conference, and she's a US expert in um, Spanish in the Latino community in, um, in, the, um, in the United States, and she was describing how language policies in the US are actually becoming more restrictive, and they're, they're moving from bilingual programs to English as a second language programs, and that in some states it's actually illegal to have bilingual language programs in schools, which doesn't seem to bode 
very well for the increasing Latino population and for, as you suggest, the, the need of the US to look to its neighbours. And I, I wondered what your impression had been of, of the situation, of the language. And, um, because from what she said, it sounded like it was being actively discouraged bilingualism. And she said that all the, all the, um, the assessments, all the standardised tests were all in English. So that, I guess it creates, seems to be creating two classes of people within the US and seems to be, um, I guess, encouraging the Latinos to be at the lower end. Yes, thank you very much. I mean, I, no, I, I, I uh, um, uh, agree with what Pedro uh, Garcia said. Um, uh, you've got to remember that the United States is an empire. Um, but it's a very remarkable empire, and it's been very successful in getting its victim and subject peoples to subscribe to uh, its own self-description. I think the only other empire which has been comparably successful in harnessing the allegiance of its subjects and victims to be the Chinese Empire. Because just as in China, you know, everybody, whether he's a Ping Min or a Li or a Hakka uh, or whatever, thinks of himself or herself as Chinese. Obviously, there are exceptions in Tibet and, uh, uh, and, and in the Islamic um, Western country. But broadly speaking, in China, very, very successful in this program. And the United States has been comparably successful. Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, Italian-American, German-American, Italian-American identity has been reduced to a very um, uh, formal and, um, uh, and token um, uh, sphere. Uh, and, and the allegiance to um, the, the state is very strong in all the former community, even, you know, amongst um, um, Native Americans, uh, who were biggest victims of the war, and, uh, um, and of course Black Americans, who were also uh, historically very seriously victimized. Um, and the main, uh, we have one of the big elements, as I was going to say the main element, perhaps that's not right, but so one of the very big elements in this has been um, uh, linguistic anxiety. Um, and every other language was pretty much dead from the United States. Um, um, some languages, which were really important minority languages like Yiddish, have disappeared just about completely. Barely survived. Um, very few people who call themselves Italian Americans speak any Italian. They, 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 they eat spaghetti and meatballs, a dish which no Italian was ever heard of. Um, the, 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 the whole, whole comfort dish was really you know, obliterated by self-description to a kind of you know, um, American normal. Um, you know, you know, German Americans don't speak German. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm not surprised, you know, on the basis of you know, what Dylan asked the, the question about the origins of. Um, um, uh, U.S. hostility to um, Hispanics. Uh, I think, on, you know, along the lines of the observations he um, he made, it's a rational inference 
from what most people know of the history of the United States, that you, you're going to continue to forge this, this unity by suppressing minority languages. And I think that feeling is at the basis of this hostility to the use of Spanish, um, which is very, very marked in, in some, um, some areas. Most, most states that have attempted where where attempts have been made to inscribe bilingualism into the state constitution, those efforts have, um, have failed. And I'm therefore very pessimistic about the future of Spanish in the United States. Uh, I mean, most people expect the Hispanophone community to continue to grow. I strongly suspect it's going to shrink and that in the long run, Spanish will be like all the other minority languages, it will disappear pretty, um, pretty much. Um, and that will be a triumph of um, um, anglicization in the United States, just as the use of Magyar in present-day Hungary has been a triumph of Magyarization. And, uh, um, uh, uh, it's, Part of that national national identity, national syndrome. The, the general asked us about that, um, described or alluded to um, earlier. And I, I, you know, I know that when you look at stuff like where's my little twiddle at my head? Um, when you look at stuff like the, uh, you know, uh, sorry, the the J C Penny ad, you think, well, Spanish is clearly alive and well and living in the. Um, in the United States, I'm not sure. Hmm. Oh, sorry. I'm Second to last one. I'm not sure, you know, that that's um, um, uh, that's a kind of you know sign of the times for the future that people conventionally suppose. I, I mean, I have to say that I also tried to get the Spanish government to put money into. Education in Spanish in the United States with predictably negative um, results because you know, everybody in in um, in the um, uh, Spanish state institutions and organs concerns acknowledges that it would be a good idea, but you know it costs money. Um, um, New initiatives are very difficult now to fund new initiatives, or especially if you justify them as I did on cultural role than as the young man from Canada would do on Well, on, uh, on that sobering note, I guess, um, we should bring it to a close. I'm getting the hand signals. Um, Felipe, I want to thank you for uh, coming to the LSE. It's been a great pleasure to hear what you have to say. It's a terrific presentation. And uh, please join me in, in thanking uh, Felipe for being here. There's going to be a book signing. His book is on sale um, right outside uh, down the stairs, and he's going to stay around for a few minutes to, uh, to sign books. So, uh, so please join us. Thank you.